Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. You're looking at illegal migrants arrive at a New York City high school. You've seen this before, right? It's been happening all over the country. Uh, Democrats overly generous with people who got here illegally, giving them shelter, giving them money. But I've never seen this before because the students at this high school where they're arriving were all, all evicted. That is the James Madison High School in Brooklyn, New York. It's been around for 100 years. Chuck Schumer, three Supreme Court justices graduated from that school. And the students have been told on a Tuesday morning, they were told, you cannot come back. We are letting in 2,000 illegal migrants. You'll do your learning remotely, you know, like during COVID. Yeah, Zoom calls and Skype and that stuff. You know, I um, this is a total shocker. A, a lot of kind of surprised and even shocked all of us with uh, the migrant crisis, giving up the border. But this, uh, this is happening in my backyard, by the way. And wow, 2,000 students gone. Actually, I'm sorry, 3,400 students attend that school, being replaced by 2,000 migrants who will make it their home, perhaps permanently, there's no indication when the students will be allowed back into school. You do your learning at home via Zoom, and the migrants will take over, are taking over the school. You know, just uh, I think uh, this week we saw Mayorkas say that no one here is breaking the law. With all of these fiascos, constant, 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 I know the law is being broken. This man is a liar. Some have accused DHS of not enforcing our nation's laws. This could not be further from the truth. Not further. Fr- <laughs> All right. Let me see those migrants. You're telling me. You're telling me there's not one law somewhere that can prevent this situation. If there isn't, they ought to pass one uh, now <laughs> in two minutes. I can't believe it. I cannot believe it's happening. Illegal migrants taking over a high school. 3,400 plus students told to go home. You're going to learn on a computer. Uh, This is America in 2024. Wow. Wow. Now, we have some incompetent people in New York who came up with this plan, actually was encouraging it all along. Eric Adams, the goofiest guy in the world, just loves press conferences, does not know how to govern, 
isn't even good at politics, but he's going to get a lot of attention in the days ahead, and that's what he wants. We'll have more on this fiasco later in the show. Man, oh man, oh man. All right, but there is this, and perhaps it'll give me some solace. Adversity, it fuels greatness. You've heard that before. It's actually in the Bible, and a great example of it is what Donald Trump has gone through and, well, the benefits of the test, the test. You've seen the latest polls, right? He is, let's see, 64% in, 63% in Iowa, 40 points above second place Ron DeSantis tied with Nikki Haley. Uh, consider that when you realize again that Donald Trump was in court today. He was in court. He showed up for an appellate hearing. This whole thing is, well, ludicrous, as you know, but imagine, imagine these results. Did the Democrats ever in a million years think this would happen? No. They thought we'd take one look at those courtroom sketches that we've been seeing now for almost a year and be horrified, horrified. Oh my gosh, he looks like a, well, you only see criminals sketched like that. We know who he is. This doesn't phase us anymore. I'll tell you who it does phase. The Democrats, they, this plan of theirs has disintegrated. They are terrified, aren't they? President Trump is going to find himself in and out of the courtroom throughout the, uh, the political season here for the running up to the election. Once these trials really heat up, when we come in the spring, Donald Trump will be too distracted to take on Joe Biden. The beginning of next year will be very busy for Trump, who is campaigning while facing all of this legal trouble. This is a person who is very distracted by these legal cases. I think he's going to spend more time in courtrooms next year than on the campaign trail. <laughs> and obviously, this all last year, Donald Trump will not be a viable president for candidate. That poll one more time, 40 points on top. What will they pull next? Because they're going to have to try to pull something. I mean, the Democrats winning things legitimately, just the good old fashioned way, that's, no. They're gonna, I kinda love it, don't you? I mean, their plans haven't worked. Now, gotta talk about what happened today in court. He was there to talk about, well, the issue of presidential immunity. He didn't do any speaking, but his lawyers did. And they made a great case about this. Uh, so. I have to boil it down for me so I can understand it, because when they start talking in court about these constitutional issues, it gets very confusing very, very early. Here's, here's a taste of that, actually. Right there, and it says, most separation of powers claims may not be subject to interlocutory view, but there are some that may. And then it goes on to say presidential immunity arising from the separation of power, citing Clinton against Jones. So Cisneros, I think, expressly contemplates that there be interlocutory jurisdiction in this sort of claim. And that's further reinforced by the court's subsequent decisions in Rose and Rostentowski. All right, what are they talking about? <laughs> wow, Rostenkowski, that guy? It gets very convoluted, and they start talking about Griswold versus Honeywell versus stuff from a long time ago. But I stayed with it, and it is about presidential immunity. And it kind of goes like this regarding presidential immunity. Let's say it's, uh, well, let's go back to 9-11, September 11th. America is under attack, right? Now, President Bush, you'll remember, uh, was on the phone, and at one point, it was actually kind of late, but at one point, I believe he gave the go-ahead, if you have to do it, take down civilian airliners. That word actually may have come from Vice President Cheney, but let's say it came from Bush, and let's say they did shoot down an airliner that wasn't hijacked and innocent people were killed and maybe people on the ground. You couldn't sue President Bush. 
You couldn't even arrest him. And I don't think that would be arrestable, but some people out there might make that case. No, he has a certain degree of immunity because it was an official presidential act. There are people throughout the government who have immunity. The Pentagon, if you join the military, if you sign up, they're going to make you sign a piece of paper that says you cannot sue the military. You can't sue the government if something goes wrong. Uh, you know, they'll give you a nice life insurance policy, but you can't, you can't sue it. So, like the Secretary of Defense, in a weird way, has a certain amount of immunity, okay? All right. Now they say President Trump doesn't because he committed the crime. I don't believe that, but... Uh, and then they took it to an absurd level. Here's one of the judges, the appellate judges, uh, questioning Trump's lead appellate attorney. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so your answer is, is no. Is, my answer is qualified, yes. There's a political process that would have to occur under our, the structure of our Constitution, which would require impeachment and conviction by the Senate. Okay, SEAL Team 6. Um, he got boxed in there, all right? And the other side took advantage of it. If Donald Trump ordered SEAL Team 6 to kill somebody, a political rival, yeah, he'd be in trouble. I get that. What kind of world are we living in if, as I understood my friend on the other side to say here, a president orders his SEAL team to assassinate a political rival and resigns, for example, before an impeachment? Not a criminal act. President sells a pardon, resigns, or is not impeached, not a crime. I think that is extraordinarily frightening future. Trump guy had a pretty good comeback for this. The frightening future that he alleges where presidents are very, very seldom, if ever, prosecuted because they have to be impeached and convicted first is the one we've lived under for the last 235 years. That's not a frightening future. That's our republic. What he is forecasting is a situation where the floodgates will be open. We are in a situation where uh, we have the prosecution of the chief political opponent who's winning in every poll. Uh, All right. Let me address this whole SEAL Team 6 thing because it's getting a lot of attention and it's nonsense. We all know the SEALs, right? The Navy SEALs. Uh, the Navy SEALs, they're pretty good. Just ask them. <laughs> yeah, those guys. Uh, they get to wear their own uniforms. I love the SEALs. Uh, they're, they're friendly rivals of the Marine Corps at times. Of course, SEAL Team 6, they got Bin Laden, right? And that was totally, totally awesome. Now, let's pretend for a moment that Donald Trump ordered SEAL Team 6 to kill Rosie O'Donnell, all right? <laughs> uh, it's ludicrous, of course. You know it's ludicrous. I know it's ludicrous. That would never happen. And even if it did, well, you could actually prosecute a president for doing that because it would be outside of the line of duty. It would not be an official act. Go to the White House website. They have an official job description for the President of the United States. Under Article Two of the Constitution, the President is responsible for the execution and enforcement of the laws created by Congress, okay? Uh, Donald Trump executing, say, uh, Rosie O'Donnell, <laughs> nobody is contending that that would fall within his official acts as President, okay? But, and here's the important thing that they want to confuse everybody about, and they're pretty thoroughly confused. President Trump having doubts about the fairness of the 2020 election. That's not outside of his official duties. That's totally within the president's realm. He's allowed to engage in politics. He's allowed to. He's allowed to. 
This is well within the scope of politics. Happens all the time. Elections are contested. He's also allowed to point out, hmm, we had that pandemic, and they rearranged the rules for the election because of the pandemic. They did that, and that's not received nearly enough attention. Uh, President Trump had his lawyers look at the Electoral Count Act of 1887. Yeah, that exists. Article 2, these things exist, and you're allowed to engage in them. It's within the official job description of the presidency. Does that make sense? I, you're even allowed to disagree with your vice president. Yeah, you can. You can even disagree publicly with your own vice president about what this stuff means. And you're allowed to take the Twitter. And you're allowed to say Mike Pence does not have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our constitution. Everything that Trump did was in the line of duty. Or you could call it an official act. Now, the left, they'll point out that, well, it, it was all a fraud because Trump knew he lost. They always say that. How do they know that he knew? Trump knew he lost. I know that Donald Trump knew that he lost the election. Trump knew he lost, and he kept saying that uh, he won when he didn't. President Trump knew from unassailable sources that his election fraud claims were false. He admitted he had lost the election. How do we know that? How do we know that? Now, they interviewed people like this guy. Who is he? Take a look at him. Uh, do you know who that is? All right. His name is Bill. He's from New Jersey. And he worked on the campaign. And he said, Mr. President, I think you lost. That's from reporting, and it's out there. So what? His name is Bill. He's not in the Constitution. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter what Nora O'Donnell says. Nora O'Donnell with the hair on CBS News, right? If she says the election's over, you can look it up. It's not in the Constitution. And Donald Trump makes up his own mind, doesn't he? He also sees things that others don't see. You remember when he met with NATO, how that went over with NATO? You see him there with his arms folded and everyone's trying to convince him of something and they can't? Angela Merkel has had it up to here? I think these moments are pretty amazing. He is a different type of person. And he's somewhat immune to the pressure that might be applied and others would cave to. Like, who remembers the Access Hollywood stuff? Totally mischaracterized by the mainstream and everybody else, even conservatives. They don't know what was actually said on that tape, which wasn't bragging about sexual assault. It was something totally, totally different. But we'll have that conversation another time. You remember after that? That was in October of 2016. And Republicans everywhere told him, you must drop out. You must leave this race. The only chance we have is if you give this nomination somehow to Mike Pence. Yep, all over the place. They were telling him you can't win. You must quit this race right now. They were all wrong. Literally all of them, which was the Republican Party. They were wrong. Trump vowed not to quit. And aren't we glad that he didn't, that he didn't listen to Reince Priebus or anybody like that. All right, so that takes us to what this is all about. January 6th, when Donald Trump gave that speech at the Ellipse. I, this is really important to understand, folks. You already know that everything he said was fine, right? 
peaceful, patriotically in America. You're allowed to contest an election. You're allowed to go all the way up to when they're counting the electoral votes. You're allowed to do that. Paul Gosar is allowed to stand up as he did with uh, Ted Cruz at 1.12 p.m. and object to the electoral count. That happened at 1.12 p.m. That's an important time, by the way. Because what happens? Well, they break to debate issues. Now, everybody overlooks this, uh, what they actually talked about before everything went to hell. Here's Jim Jordan. So what they do next? They change the rules. They change the election law, and they did it in an unconstitutional fashion. And that's what we're going to show over the next several hours of debate. The Constitution is clear, as, as uh, Whip Scalise just said. State legislatures and only state legislatures set election law. In Arizona, the law says voter registration ends on October 5th. Democrats said, we don't care what the law says. They went to a court, got an Obama-appointed judge to extend it 18 days. No debate, as Steve talked about. No debate, no discussion. He just did it. Pennsylvania, same thing. You know all that stuff? A lot of people don't because a few minutes later, they had to call it all off because of what was going on with the protesters. Uh, here's Paul Gosar, who had a lot to say about Arizona. He was just getting started. Watch what happened to him. Over 400,000 mail-in ballots were altered, switched from President Trump to Vice President Biden, or completely erased from President Trump's totals. The proof is in the counting curves, the curves that cannot occur except with odds so rare and unlikely that winning the Mega Millions lottery is more probable. Uh, Madam, uh, uh, Mr. Speaker, can I have order in the chamber? The House will be in order. The House will be in order. Okay. You heard somebody yell in the back. There's all kinds of commotion. What's going on? There's some confusion. And then they call it a day. Capitol Police are running all over the place, and uh, it all gets basically canceled. Without objection, the chair declares the House in recess pursuant to Clause 12B of Rule 1. And that was it. They were just warming up with the objections. They were just getting to the heart of the matter. What was going on? Well, yeah, there were protesters outside. Let me show you that. On January 6th, at a place called Peace Plaza, why did the Capitol Police have one, one police officer guarding what looks like a pretty major point of entry? There's one person there. Why? Why just one? And like, we point, like we've asked many times, who was that little cop aggressively waving people in? Hmm? Come right this way. A commotion will stop the objections. You see, this is all not to stop the voting, but to stop the objections to the voting. That's what they wanted. They wanted a, a scene, and they could call it off. Why did those police officers just let everybody come in? Why did that happen? Were they ordered to just make it a scene, or was it a wink and a nod? We don't know because the January 6th committee did not ask these questions. And Ashley Babbitt being killed? I mean, after she got killed, well... I mean, come on, you can't continue with the objections. If you do that, somebody else could get killed. You know, and what time was Ashley Babbitt shot, by the way? It's not too long after Paul Gosar. Yeah, 
After that, forget it. It wasn't going to happen. Liz Cheney, according to her book, said uh, maybe we could get everybody to drop their objections now. She wanted everybody to drop the objections. And what did McConnell say? McConnell said, that's exactly the plan. Get everyone now to stop the objections. The plan, the plan, the plan. I got questions about that plan, don't you? Anyway, pretty wild, isn't it? We'll be right back with um, updates on that situation in Brooklyn and Mayorkas getting weirder and weirder. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so, so your answer is, is, no. is My answer is qualified, yes. There's a political process that would have to occur under us, the structure of our Constitution, which would require impeachment and conviction by the Senate. All right, the fake news said the judge owned the lawyer. I don't think they know what they're talking about. It's the one moment they're really feasting on. What happened in that courtroom? What does it mean? Uh, I'd like to bring in two experts who have uh, made appeals before. They know the Constitution inside and out. Jesse Banal, constitutional law attorney, uh, has represented President Trump in several matters, especially the Colorado Bila case. And David Schoen, President Trump's impeachment lawyer. That was the second impeachment. Gentlemen, welcome. Uh, I take it you heard. We couldn't have cameras in there. We heard the proceedings. It did seem like they were out to get uh, the Trump lawyer. Uh, but David, how did how did it all go? How did it go today for our side? Our side. It's a good question. Uh, you know, it's not a friendly panel. I mean, on paper, the panel looked like two to one against, with the one a question anyway. Um, but uh, Judge Henderson. But um, I think that uh, you know, it's very easy to be sort of Monday morning quarterback or see it from the distance. Um, if there were a criticism to raise, Judge Pan went after him. That's for sure. And both of her questions, the, the, the real focus of her questions, was really sort of irrelevant. On the other hand, I'm not happy with the way he handled the answers. Mr. Sauer locked himself into a position on absolute immunity without really um, appreciating, I think, what her question was. He could have given her the answer she wanted to her question, and it wouldn't have affected his argument. I, the one thing that I was most shocked about, and it's not necessarily a major issue in the case, but I was shocked just as a person who argues cases regularly. The court made clear before the argument they wanted, to, they wanted answers to questions raised in the amicus brief. You can be sure Ed Meese, Steve Calabrese, and Gary Lawson wouldn't have raised a frivolous issue in their brief. They raised the issue squarely that Jack Smith's appointment is unconstitutional. The court said they were interested in hearing about that. When they asked Mr. Sauer about that, he said, well, that's not an issue we've raised in this case. It's a persuasive and important argument, but it's not an issue we've raised in this case. I was very disappointed by that. You know, I, I heard that as well. And so that's, that's what was dismissed. I didn't know that Ed Meese wrote that stuff. Wow, wow, that might not be, whew. Jesse, um, all right, it doesn't sound like that went well, although I hear that the expectations were low for our side. We knew we were gonna get a raw deal from the appellate court. From what you heard today, what are the chances that this thing makes it to the Supreme Court if they rule against Trump? 
Well, thanks, Greg. I, and, and I have a little bit of a, a different take on things. I think John Sauer did an absolutely outstanding job uh, today. And what the, the problem is, is that, is that the D.C. Circuit, um, some of those judges, I, I think they have a problem with the constitutional structure that the founders set up for us. Um, and that is that we do have a system of laws in this country, a system of, of laws that says that we are not going to just let the judiciary run rampant over the executive branch and making decisions, that there's a process for dealing with that. And that in process is through the impeachment, uh, is through impeachment, and that once you impeach and convict, then once that happens, then you can prosecute. But in this case, they did try to impeach him through a hoax. And then after that, they acquitted him. The Senate acquitted him. They vindicated Donald Trump again. Um, and so that means there can certainly be no uh, criminal prosecution here. And it really is just that simple. That is the, the system that's worked for almost uh, 250 years in this country. And and that's what the uh, I think the the judges were struggling with is is that uh, is that system where we yeah. go from here. Um, you know, the, the reporting is, is that I, I think um, based on on that argument, this panel may not side with President Trump, uh, but there's always an opportunity to ask the entire D.C. Circuit to look at it again. And then there's the opportunity to go to the Supreme Court. And I think especially with the impeachment judgment clause issue, there's a very, very good chance that the justices of the Supreme Court are going to agree with that argument that, that I just explained. Here's the DOJ lawyer making his point, picking up on this uh, SEAL Team 6 nonsense. What kind of world are we living in if as I understood my friend on the other side to say here, a president orders his SEAL team to assassinate a political rival and resigns, for example, before an impeachment, not a criminal act. President sells a pardon, resigns, or is not impeached, not a crime. I think that is extraordinarily frightening future. Extraordinarily over the top. Uh, David, can I run this by you? In the military, when a soldier did, does something wrong, they have an investigation to find out whether it was within the line of duty, right? Within the line of duty. Yep. And it gets kind of like, you know, if he was drinking, it's not within the line of duty. I believe that preposterous scenario, taking out a, like, Rosie O'Donnell, as I mentioned earlier, Donald Trump ordering SEAL Team 6 to take out Rosie O'Donnell, is clearly outside the duties of the president, which are delineated. So the question could be, was it line of duty or not line of duty? And line of duty is definitely objecting to an election uh, or having concerns right. about the right. fairness and the right. Electoral right. Count Act of 1887 and talking to your vice president, stuff like that. That's line of duty stuff. Right, so substitute line of duty for official act. And that's the way the answer should have gone in this case, rather than continuing to focus on absolute immunity. There are certain crimes, like murder, that are malum in se. And so those crimes go outside the official acts, and they could be prosecuted. But let me say a couple, two things quickly. In my view, the impeachment judgment clause argument is the secondary argument in this case. The OLC, Office of Legal Counsel, in 2000, did a very comprehensive opinion about it. Found it to be a call, went against the Trump position on that, for reasons that make sense. But the other position makes sense also. The stronger argument to me is the argument that draws on Nixon versus Gerald. This kind of thing, ensuring that the election was fair and taking steps when he believed firmly that there was election fraud is quintessential official action. We can't have the courts or uh, any other branch of government inquiring into whether that was an appropriate act, and if not, then criminalizing it. That yeah. uh, completely yeah. strips the executive of power. That's the heart of the argument here. Focusing on the action here, what you just said, 
He had an obligation under the Take Care Clause and under his oath of office, given the information he had, to challenge the results of that election, period, and that cannot be criminalized. One last thing I want to tell you. Pierce is not telling you the truth, the government lawyer, when he says one could then evade prosecution by resigning from office. In the second impeachment case, the Democrats argued over and over again on the jurisdictional question that any former president who resigns or a former president, including Thomas Jefferson, could be still impeached. be impeached yep. and convicted. And we, uh, we saw that. And you've defended President Trump, ex-President Trump, very, very ably, by the way, David Schoen. Uh, and Jesse Benal, thank you both very much. Uh, brilliant, brilliant stuff. And we'll be right back. Trump versus Biden, that's what it looks like it's going to be, of course, right, in 2024 for the general election. Hey, got to hand it to the Democrats about their get-out-the-vote effort. I mean, my goodness gracious, they're, they're finding new voters, they're signing them up, they're all about finding new voters. I mean, just look at it. Look at these efforts to get new people to the polls, huh? 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 You get it? These are, I mean, this is a real logical explanation. Why do they, why are they letting these people just come into America unvetted, illegally, right? There are so many things that can be done to stop this, but they won't. It's weird. I think ultimately they, they want these to be Democrat voters, or at least they could portray them as voting Democrat. Uh, Mayorkas, I am so suspicious of this guy, aren't you? Talk about somebody who's impeachable. Uh, Mayorkas is now kind of advocating for these folks more than he is for the people who live here, American citizens, newly arrived and whatever. Uh, I would take issue with your characterization that it is easy to get to the United States. I think we all know very well the perilous journey uh, that migrants take in the hands of ruthless smugglers who don't care about their well-being. They care only about making a profit. That perilous journey has been uh, uh, reported and has been shared with us as Border Patrol agents interview uh, migrants. You see how he's advocating for them? Hey, I'm sorry, that's in a way not our problem. And these are economic, they're coming here for economic reasons, not political persecution. And I think he knows that, I do. All right, again, what kind of crisis? A high school full of American students Illegal migrants have just kicked them out. The Democrat leadership here in New York City made that happen. 3,500 students now have to learn remotely because these migrants in this country illegally uh, are taking over the school. Eric Adams, for years actually, was boasting about New York being a sanctuary city and he put this video online basically advertising to Central America, South America. Look at what we got here, you gotta come and get and they did come, and now we have a real problem, and we don't have the people to deal with it, the leadership, federally or locally. We're in trouble, but you know the solution. Get out and vote, and give money, too, while you're at it, to your candidate of choice. I'll be right back. This country was made by tax rebels, freedom fighters, gold seekers, believers, lovers, and true patriots. We're Newsmax, and we're their heirs, and so are you. Newsmax TV, real news for real people. Did President Biden learn of the Defense Secretary's uh, cancer diagnosis? He was informed today. 
uh, any details on how, what his reaction was? Uh, he was informed by the chief of staff uh, uh, earlier this morning, um, and I, I'm not going to go into more detail than that. Oh, boy, the defense secretary, uh, Lloyd Austin, is in trouble because he's embarrassed the White House. You can lose a war, but you can't embarrass the White House, huh? You know, we're talking about Lloyd Austin. He's kept a pretty low profile, this guy. Uh, most noted, I, I would say, for, well, a couple of things. His obsessive concern about catching COVID. Remember that? Hey, by the way, uh, what does he have again? Um, prostate cancer. We want him to get over that, okay? At, uh, that afflicts uh, one in eight men. But uh, how could he not have told the White House? I mean, they're pretty tight, right? He and the White House? After all, uh, the White House writes all of this guy's speeches, I think. The truth of the matter is, we need your help. I'm talking, of course, about extremism and extremist ideology. I also want you to share with your leadership your own personal experiences with encountering extremists and extremist ideology in the military. Yeah, take up, take up your commander's time with uh, ghost stories about phantoms and mirages. Well, uh, he was instrumental in losing our war in Afghanistan, and he's instrumental in making the military beyond woke and beyond broken with these, um, I don't know what the heck you call them, these influencers that are yeah, actually commissioned by the military to do stuff like this. All right, I hope he gets uh, better, but I hope he uh, gets fired, actually. Uh, that's what he deserves. We'll be right back. Well, they keep coming and coming and coming. After all, Biden told them to surge the border. And uh, the Biden administration really, look, I see illegal invaders. Biden sees voters. I'm pretty sure that's what's going on. Uh, and if some of these folks happen to be, uh, what's the term, gender fluid, uh, well, they may want to go to California. Get this, in California, as of the first of the year, January 1st, 2024, uh, illegal immigrants qualify for medical coverage. But that includes, did you know this? Sex change surgeries, hormonal treatment, uh, I guess the guys get estrogen and the girls get testosterone, however it works. It seems like preposterous public policy. And I'd like to bring in two of our favorites, Jamie Michelle, she is the founder of Gays Against Groomers, and Ali London, social media personality from the UK, who, by the way, born a man, temporarily became a woman, uh, saw that it was not the right thing to do, uh, medically and psychologically, and then transitioned back to being a man and Ali, forgive me, but you're you're so enlightened on this issue, and you literally have been there and done that, haven't you? Exactly. I've been there. I know what it's like to struggle with these transgender issues. But the new law in California is absolutely preposterous, as you said. Illegal migrants that have been in the state since 2014 that are on low-income thresholds are now eligible to have a transgender sex change using the Medi-Cal insurance provider. I mean... This just adds to California's existing law, which since 2017, they've spent $4 million on prisoners in California prisons, including death row inmates to have sex change surgeries. $2.5 million as well has been spent on vaginoplasties for prisoners in California. There seems to be like um, a race, a contest, who can be the wokest. I, I can't imagine that any person, public health authority, 
statesmen would think that this is good policy. I think, Jamie Michelle, it is for optics. It is for, you know, just how woke, how left, how uh, open, how LGBTQ plus exclamation point we can be. Yeah, it's just a never-ending barrage of wokeness. And I, I think they're trying to figure out how they can continue to top themselves. I mean, they're starting to get really creative. I, I really, I, I wouldn't have imagined that there's really much much where anywhere else for them to go um, to get more woke, but yet here we are. Um, and I just feel so bad for the California taxpayers, the residents of California. I have a lot of family out there. I used to live out there. I got out in 2016, thankfully. But, you know, it's just, they just keep piling this on and taxes are already extremely high. And for them to have to pay for illegal immigrants, um, anything of any kind is awful in and of itself. But to add sex change surgeries, I mean, what what is next? Is there anything that comes after this? I'm sure they'll think of something, but this is this is really atrocious. Uh, so this is having a real world impact on people's health and also, well, their survival. Something happened at an Iowa school last week, and I think it's fueled by some of this stuff. Take a look, please. Here's what we know. A sixth grade student was killed. The school's principal and four others were injured. The 17-year-old shooter died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The shooter identified as 17-year-old Dylan Butler, a student at the school. He shot and killed a sixth grader and wounded five others, including the school's principal, Dan Marburger. All right. A school shooting. We have too many of them. But if you go into uh, this individual's background and the media doesn't want to do that because there are suggestions on a social media post, Dylan Butler, that, uh, you know, uh, confused in terms of gender, very pro-trans, uh, at one point identified as non-binary, all that kind of stuff. Um, my first question to you, Ali, number one, let's, let's accept for a moment that, you know, he had confusion about gender. And, uh, okay, that happens. But do you think that was, at this point, there are a lot of people who have that confusion and it's artificially generated. I know there can be genuine confusion, gender dysphoria, but now it's being created by our culture and almost thrust upon people who wouldn't have had these thoughts otherwise? Well, yes, the gender ideology has become radicalized. We see people, uh, young people, that become very angry because of the gender confusion that is being pushed on them from schools and social media. And this particular shooter did identify as gender fluid and trans. They use pronouns on their Instagram. Yet that's something the mainstream media likes to cover up. Just like the Nashville shooter last year, Audrey Hale, who killed six, was transgender. Again, it doesn't fit the narrative. They want you to believe that you know, putting kids and young people on hormones, pushing this ideology on them makes them mentally sound. But really, we're seeing a lot of mental illness that really needs to be addressed. The list goes on and on, quite frankly. Uh, and, you know, there are far more gender dysphoric individuals engaged in high profile mass shootings than white supremacists. I mean, um, the, 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 the data is right here. Uh, Jamie, do me a favor. I want to I want to show you uh, Joe Biden. At his worst, perhaps. I said last year, especially to our younger transgender Americans, I'll always have your back as your president so you can be yourself and reach your God-given potential. I know uh, the human rights campaign. I know far-left activists pushing trans issues for, you know, money, for status, who knows what. What is Joe Biden's core motivation? Is it to appease them or is there something else going on? That, as we have observed, is so far outside a president's job description, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think this just goes to, you know, the Democrats have seemed to always want to just play to the most radical fringe minority in their base, which are the lunatics, the leftists and the extreme alphabet mob. Um, I think it's more just about the same in Cal the same as what's happening in California, just trying to be as woke as possible. Um, and I think it's really sad to push this on children and to, you know, gay people and trans people, we have every right as all other Americans, and that's all we ever wanted. Uh, that's what we fought for and we won. And now it just seems like a race to uh, supremacy, like gay and trans supremacy. And and um, pushing this narrative that somehow we don't have our rights and we are less than still and seen as less than in society is what is causing this radicalization among youth as well. Um, you know, the lie that there is a trans genocide. This is very, uh, it's a lie. And, and it is harming our youth and making them, um, you know, take up arms in many cases. And, and yeah, it's coming straight from the top. The narrative is coming straight from the top. And it's very sad to see. Gay and trans supremacy, right. As a person who happens to be a uh, heterosexual individual, I am feeling marginalized. Very, very <laughs> marginalized. Um, Ali London, final word. You've been through a lot. And your book, by the way, uh, we want to, One Man's Devastating Struggle with Woke Ideology and His Battle to Protect Children. Um, congratulations. You've been through a lot. How are you doing? How, how, are, how is your um, mental well-being at this point? No, I'm doing great, Greg. It's been over a year since my detransition. And the reason I detransitioned was actually finding faith through God that was really able to turn my life around. And I think what a, a lot of young people are missing these days, they're missing God, they're missing Jesus, they're not getting that. So for me personally, that really helped. And you know, since that time I've detransitioned, I've really seen the devastating effects of what they're pushing, like in California, they are now uh, allowing kids to go there without parental consent and be transitioned, if the parent tries to stop them, the parent is considered a child abuser in the court. So now I'm really trying to push back against this. And I think, you know, every single person across America needs to speak up now because we're seeing 11-year-olds and 12-year-olds being transitioned. You guys are amazing. And thank you for sharing that. Uh, thank you to both of you, Jamie and Ollie. To be continued, and we'll be right back. It's our America. We built it. Courage. Freedom. Millions go to Newsmax when they need to know. Start today on the free Newsmax app. Newsmax is real news for real people. My two little girls uh, enjoying some sculpture work out in the country. Uh, <laughs> Madeline is in the red coat. Annalise is in the blue and they're amazing. It's, it's great to see them out in the country. You know, they're city girls. Okay, anyway, be home soon, ladies. And thank you again for watching. Get the word out, right? We're doing some really interesting stuff here. Very unique, and I'm proud of it. Grateful to the whole team, and I'll see you tomorrow.